0: Thank you, Gabe. All right, so this morning we are staying with our study on 1 Samuel. Um, Can I ask you to do something with me before we look at it? There's a big piece of this that we're going to look at today that's about repentance. And what I find when it comes to repentance is unless the Holy Spirit fire comes, we get backfire or we get no fire. And so I want there to be fire. I want us to I want everything that's not really us to be consumed today. Everything that's not Jesus in us, you know, and isn't gonna last forever. I'd like it to be cut off and burned up and any kind of bondage in your life, anything that's tied you to this world, I'd like it just I'd like it just cut and burned up. But uh, that's gonna be up to you in some ways, but I think it's also a warfare issue. I know the intercessors have been praying this morning about this, but I'd like to stop and just pray. Would you mind holding your hands out? Lord, uh, as an act of openness, we, we, we extend our hands, open palms to receive. There are many of us in this room that are tired, not just physically tired, not just because we're busy, but there are many of us who are overloaded with things that are not from you, burdens and and trials and challenges where we don't know where you are. And today we're opening our hands and saying, the way I do it alone is not good enough. I want more of you. And Lord, as much capacity as we have today, we want all of you. So We take a stand now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ against the resistance of the enemy. Satan, you're a liar, and I bind you in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot hinder or hamper or distract from the work of repentance. We receive today from the Holy Spirit the gift of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm going to have you read uh, the first part of the Scripture we're going to look at today. And so, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. Would you read out loud with me? The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. The time was long, it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. This is a powerful story that we're going to be looking at, but before we do, I'd like to, I'd like to share something with you uh, that I think frames this story and many other stories but I also believe it is a burden that the Lord has laid on my heart for you as my friends, as my, the people I pastor, as the people I love. And I, want, I would like you to hear it not just as like a teaching or doctrinal or theological understanding. I'd like you to hear my heart in this. What you, what, what you tend to see in the people's lives that you love the most is that they screw up a lot. That they make bad mistakes, that they make bad decisions, that oftentimes, that in the crises of their lives, they make sinful choices that hurt them, that limit them, that cause them to not be and have all that they can have, because in the moment, their pleasure or their relief or their pain is more important to them than obedience. Obedience. And one of the big issues that I, I see in our lives, all of our lives, all over America in the church today, is that we know much about mercy, but we know almost nothing about grace. And it is important that you understand the distinction and the difference between the two. Mercy is simply this, that God withholds from us the punishment we deserve. That God is always merciful to us. If you've messed up, If you've you've done the worst things, if you're the worst sinner in this room, it does not keep you from the mercy of God. God is by very nature merciful. In His goodness, He is merciful. And and this might be a secret that we're not supposed to say, but even if you wait to the last breath and you ask for mercy, He will give it because that's who He is. But do you want to live that way? Do you want to live that way where everything is a screw-up? Everything is is your own independence. Everything is a sin that you have to then find mercy and seek for mercy and always be in the need of mercy because you can't live with the consequences of the choices you've made. It just doesn't make sense to me. God's way is the best way. His prescription for you, for your sex life, for your finances, for your health for your obedience, those things are what give you fullness of life. When you live in independence, you live in your own resources only. When you live like your neighbors, you live as those who don't know God and do not have God in your life. Yes, he's merciful. And yes, when you realize your sinfulness and when you realize the wrong that you've done, even if it's because you got caught, he will still be merciful. But that's not all there is to the goodness of God. And so it's important that you and I understand that mercy is only one little part of his grace. His grace is something far larger. But before I talk about that, I just want to make sure you understand what mercy is. Mercy is God withholding from you the punishment that you deserve. God is so good that many times, even when you cry out to Him, and you're responsible and have done something really stupid, He will still take the responsibility for you and, and take you out of the pit. How many of us have messed up financially only to have God bless us and draw us out of the pit? How many of us have messed up sexually and still had God redeem us and make us pure as snow? I mean, He is merciful. But do you have to keep on doing stupid things to test Him in that? That's why I said I had to pray before we did talk like this. Because there there has to come a time when you say, is this all there is? Is it just sin? Confess? Sin? Confess? Sin? Confess? Is that all there is? Or is there something more? Now please hear me. Hear me. God is so good and true love never fails. And He will never ever leave you. He will never forsake you. And as stupid as you can be, He, can still, he will still be responsible and call you child. But is that how you want to live? Now it's important to me that you understand that. So what is mercy? Would you say this with be me? Mercy is God withholding, God withholding the punishment I deserve. Punishment I deserve. And, as, and, and as messed up as many of us, particularly uh, the brokenness in my life and as messed up as the stuff was in my life and places that have had to be healed and the place that are, places that are still being healed, it never changes the truth of God's word where he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only people who are worthy of being condemned and who understand that they're worthy of punishment, only only to them can that verse have deep meaning. Because I've known what it is to mess up. I've known what it is to do the wrong thing. I've known what it is to rebel and sin and be independent of God. And for him to say over me, there's no more punishment. There's no more condemnation. For him to say that over me is one of the most blessed things. That's his mercy. That's his mercy. But if I could get you to look at the cross for a minute, on one side, you can almost say on the left side, that's His mercy. That's the cross side. His mercy's there. He's always got mercy for the people who will come and will say, I've messed up, I've sinned. But on the other side, if you look, there's another side of the cross. And and, and I think what Paul says, on the other side of the cross is the resurrection side. You know, you can live your whole life as a Christian on the mercy side where you mess up, you come to God, you say, oh, please forgive me, and he does. But there's another side, and it's called the resurrection side, living in the power of his resurrection, and that's actually what I would call the grace side. Because where mercy is God withholding what you deserve, grace is him placing his favor on you, and, and you don't deserve it. And uh, I love the definition of grace, unmerited favor, the favor of the Lord. Now, now, lest you think this doesn't mean anything, you just think for a minute about people that you've known in your life who have favor. It's almost like when people have favor, doors open for them. They're ushered in to the, to the best places. They get the best seats in the restaurants. <laughs> they have favor favor. Uh, all of you can see how beautiful my wife is okay her whole family is beautiful like that and her younger sister is petite and beautiful like lisa but because she's kind of petite and cute everywhere she ever went she got favor i remember one time she went she was thinking about buying this old bmw car she went to the bmw dealership they just started giving things to her here you want a hat you want this you want that you want this I go in there and look at me and say, I don't think you can afford this. (laughs) You know, everywhere she went, she just had this favor everywhere. You know, I I sat there and I went, wow, that is amazing. That's what favor does. It's almost almost like just you show up and you have favor and everybody fawns to take care of you and everybody wants to make a way for you. Many of us in this room have never understood we have favor It's not personal favor. It's not charisma. It's not our education. It's not our finances. It's the favor of God. I didn't get it because I deserve it. I didn't get it because I earned it. I don't merit it, but he's given it to me so that I can actually, if I get past this constant sin, confess, sin, confess, and I start living in my real identity in Jesus... I can start walking in faith and doors open for me. A way is made because Jesus has already pioneered that way. See, what most of you are doing, you're trying to pioneer your own way. So why do you you think you hit so many walls? Why are so many doors closed? Because there's no pioneer for that way. No one's authored that way for you. when you start walking in the favor of God, you're walking in the path that Jesus has already opened for you. And let me tell you, it is more of a desired future than you could ever plan for yourself. But you have to make that switch. You have to go from the mercy side to the grace side. From the thank you God for not condemning me side to thank you God for the favor. But it's a faith-based favor. People can smell fear on you. People can tell when you don't don't believe you have worth. When you walk in and you're you're trying to get worth from them, they're going to know you don't have favor. When you walk in and you're a beggar, and you have a spirit of poverty on you, they're going to know you don't have favor. Until you know you have favor, no one else will know you have favor. Is this making sense to you? See, I, I'm saying this because I really believe that it's time for you to move from the left side of the cross to the right side of the cross. And to start saying, not because of any goodness in you or any smart in you or any, any talents in you, but just because it is true. I am under His grace. I walk Under his favor. Say it with me. I am under his grace. I walk under his favor. I mean, you may have to say this to yourself every single day in every trial that you come into, but once it becomes the truth to your inner man, you will see doors open that have never opened before. You will see people respond to you in ways you've never seen before. Because you we'll be having a river flowing from heaven that then flows through you to the other people around you. But if you keep living in that, oh, woe is me, oh, God, I did it again, oh, I messed up, you keep living over there, everyone will know that you haven't gotten it. They'll always know, they'll always know. Even the world will know who has favor and who has no favor. And so as we we go through 1 Kings together, to me this became so so very apparent that the people of Israel got the mercy part, they never got the favor part. So they would would go try to find their life in idolatry and sexuality. Because the, the first thing that Samuel asked them when they say, we're missing the Lord... First thing he asks them is, he says, one, you've got to repent, basically he says. You must return to the Lord. But in order to return to the Lord, he says to them, you have to put away your idols and your Ashtoreth. And one way to look at this is really, and it's not pretty, and the, you know, in the church in the past, we were so afraid of it, talking about anything that had to do with sex, so people always cleaned this up and made it sanitized. But the truth of the matter is, this was a sexually depraved group of people. They lived among their neighbors, and their neighbors worshiped at their brothel, because the temple and the brothel were one and the same. The way you worshiped your God, you united with a temple prostitute. So sexuality and spirituality were one. Well, you can imagine church growth was pretty big. Because, you know, people are thinking, wow, we're going to church today. Hey, let's, I'm telling you, that is, people don't, a lot of times we want to think, oh, they just did this. No, they did that. Okay? So the people of Israel, the Israelites said, hey, that looks like a good thing to do. Because their gods are visible. Their gods are tangible. Their gods relieve our pain. Their gods make us feel good. And so they had integrated. Now they never left and they never said Yahweh wasn't their god. But they just integrated these other things into their lives. And so their hearts were divided. You have to understand that if you had gone there, you'd have seen there were altars for Yahweh. There still was the Ark of the Covenant, as it said, in that one place in Kiriath-Jerim. You know, all of this was still going on. There still were priests. There still were sacrifices. But what had happened is, little by little, those other gods had taken up more and more space, and their bodies now belonged to those gods sexually. So that while there might be mental assent to Yahweh, there was actually physical union with the other gods. And so after a while, they had their fill of, of sex, and they had their fill of these other gods, and they started to say after 20 years, it only took them 20 years, but after 20 years, they started to, it says they lamented after Yahweh. They began to realize what they had lost. You see, because again, if you remember what I've said to you, and I will repeat it, is there is a very big difference between the omnipresence of God, which all of us have at all times, and the real manifestation of His presence. Where you begin to know and experience a pleasure, a joy, that doesn't bring the same guilt and shame and doesn't divide your family and doesn't make your kids part of the sacrifice like those other gods made it be. So Samuel when they said, we're missing God, we're lamenting our loss of God, Samuel said to them these three things. He said, one, you're going in this direction towards their gods. I'm asking you to turn around and, and go this direction and return to the Lord. If any of you have ever been in a situation where someone was trying to explain to you repentance, repentance is simply that. It's not paying a price. It's not doing some kind of obligatory things to make yourself one with God, There. There is nothing you can do that's going to make yourself one with God. Only Jesus makes you one with God. But there is this need, and it's within you and it's within your power to do, is that when you realize that you're walking the wrong way, you can change your mind and you can walk the right way. You can change your mind. Now, here's the issue that many people have. Is that, and many have come to me and said, well, I, I miss God. I, I think I want God in my life. And they start telling me what behaviors they're going to change. And, and, and in doing so, what they're saying is, I think by changing my behaviors and by committing this to the behavior and modifying and managing my behavior, then I will earn the approval and I will earn the love of God. I, forget it. Forget you're not even going to earn my love that way. Because none of us can stay committed 24-7. If you're if you're sacrifice, if you think that what you're doing behaviorally is going to somehow make you right with God, you're an idiot. You could be in the church 24-7. You could, you could wear sackcloth and ashes, and you could do all of that. It will not atone for what you've already done, and by doing this kind of independent religious nonsense, you're just showing you don't get it. So what does he say to them? He's saying God has always been here wanting to give you mercy. And he's always longed for you to grasp his grace. And all I'm asking of you is not to go and make a bunch of sacrifices. I'm not asking you to go pay for atonement or anything else. I'm asking you to turn to God, he says, with your Whole heart. It's not a question of behavior. It's a question of heart. Anybody can change their behavior. You just catch someone and give them consequences that are strong enough, they'll change their behavior. They haven't changed their heart. You know, that's one of the sad things in many of the programs of addiction is that while there is a saving of the person from the immediacy of the dangers of what they're addicted to, it usually just manifests in another addiction because the heart has not been changed. And then when you see those where their heart has changed, then the addiction no longer has appeal because it's no longer the source of the life of the person. Truth is, all of us are sin addicts. And when we repent, we all go through withdrawals. And so, what does Samuel say? Samuel says, "You got to, you got to cut off the Ashdoras. You got, you got to cut out the idols. See, what had happened to them is they had started to find life in gods with small G's. Now they need to cut those out of their life. Those things that they had made life, those things where they had found a counterfeit life, those places where." They had begun to depend that when they hurt, they ran to this, or when they, when they got afraid, they ran to that. And he's saying, look, you can't run there anymore. You know, sometimes it's a difficult step to really change and turn to God with your whole heart. Now, that's the goal. You might as well know that. It's the goal. The goal is not for you to have half heart or a quarter of your heart. It's for Him to have all your heart. That's the goal. But God is so merciful. That there are many of us that we've been with our idols for so long. And they're our reflexes, and they're our default settings. And when we get hurt, and when we react, we tend... You know, some of us have an idol called Ben and Jerry. Some of us have one called Lord and Taylor. I can't afford it, but I, I would like an idol called Needless Markup. But... Uh, you know, you, you realize that that anything where you start saying, This is where I find life, this is where I find my comfort, can easily become an idol. And it's not easy just to cut it all off. You know, in some ways it would be easier if our idol was this wood thing or stone thing or a gold thing. Because then you could just say goodbye to it and walk away from it. But the problem is just like that sexual idolatry that they were practicing. Your idol unites with your life. It wraps itself with your personality to where you begin to think that is your personality. It's not an easy thing to get rid of those things. As a matter of fact, I really believe the satanic agenda was always to hide behind the idols. Empower the idols. I don't believe the ancients simply worshipped wood and stone and metal. I believe they had actually had experiences with supernatural beings and those supernatural beings demanded worship and for that worship, they gave them certain benefits. Now, they also cost deeply and profoundly in their lives with issues of suicide and child sacrifice and all kinds of stuff that they did, but they did give a benefit and the benefit was enough that the people would try to appease those guys. I mean, some of us in this room are, truthfully, our power sources are our negative emotions. Some of us don't know how to be strong unless we're angry. Some of us don't know how to get anything done unless we're anxious or worried. And some of us have loved being pitied even though we say we don't. We love that people pity us because we kind of like that pity party. We kind of like that feeling depressed. My family was so dysfunctional we weren't happy unless we were miserable in our misery we could authenticate how important we were oh you don't know how much i go through all of those are symptoms can you hear me those are symptoms of connections to idols how do i know that well because the scripture doesn't say be angry always again i say be angry It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, And again I say, Rejoice. So, I have never found it possible to rejoice from my heart because someone makes me. I can't even make myself rejoice unless my heart is truly severed from my idolatry. Because I have never yet seen that you can compel a heart to do what a heart doesn't want to do. You know, I, I love the story of the little girl back in the minivan in her seat her car seat, and she's standing up in the car seat, and she says to her daddy, "Look at me, I'm standing up in my car seat. He pulls the car over. he says, "You're going to sit in that seat." So she puts him in the seat. And then he gets driving along. And the little girl says, Daddy, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> I mean, how many can relate? Maybe not all of us can relate to that, but I sure can. You know, you can make me do this, but inside, I am still standing up against you. And many of us, the way we do it is we're very indirect. We're very indirect. We don't come against it in a direct rebellion. We just complain a lot. We just grumble a lot. You know, and we just... We, have you ever noticed that you suddenly have friends at ShopRite if you just complain about the right thing? You can just stand in line, and you don't know any of them, but you start talking about how slow they are, how high the prices of food is, how nasty the ShopRite is, you know? And suddenly you're buddies with everybody in line. (laughs) Talk about something good nobody wants. They're like, are you crazy? (laughs) It about freaked me out in Mississippi. Everybody was nice. I'm like, what do you want? (laughs) It's just amazing, you know, the kind of ways that we we are rebellious in an indirect way. Because no one can constrain our hearts. No one can make us do with our heart what we, what we choose not to do. That is why repentance is so powerful and sweet and because it is so blessed before God because you don't repent because someone makes you. You only repent because you want to. And you begin to say, I am leaving something that doesn't work to find something that does. And life in the Spirit of God is a life that works. And when you decide that's the way you're going to go, you go that way because you say everything else doesn't work. And so Samuel said, you've got to return to the Lord and you've got to cut off all those things that are connected to you. But the beauty is, the goal is to get there with your whole heart, but the beauty is, even one step, the Lord blesses. Man, I had way too many, way too many connections. Areas of lust that bound me. Areas of fear that bound me. Areas of anger that bound me. I had terrible depressions in my 20s. But every step that I took towards Him, He blessed. And He restored my ability to trust. He rebuilt my trust apparatus so I could connect to Him. I mean, there may be people who can just go straight from full-out in idolatry, into full-out worship and surrender to Jesus, but I wasn't one of those. In my heart, I said, oh, I want to, but my heart still had bonds. It still had chains. And as he cut those chains and as I stopped being you know, being held in bondage by those old idols and by those old power sources and by those old escapes, I think really and truly one of my greatest fears and commitment was that I would get trapped and that there would be no way out. And he's so good. He he doesn't let you see that there's no way out until there's no way out. And then you don't want a way out. It's so beautiful how he does this. He's patient with us. He doesn't if it takes you a, a day, if it takes you 10 years, he will stay the same. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His love will never fail you. And even though you don't trust him, he trusts you. And that's what Samuel was operating in. Even It's so funny, even Samuel, I don't think fully got grace because Jesus hadn't been, hadn't been born yet. And Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And Jesus hadn't rise, been raised from the tomb yet. And Jesus wasn't seated at the right hand of the Father in glory for us yet. But all in this story, there's the, there is the opening and there is the invitation to grace and the people don't take it. For some reason, they're willing to receive mercy, but they're not willing to let go of all the things that, that bind them and hold them back. You know, I'll just read again. Samuel spoke to them, all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth." from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord serve him alone and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines now one of the things that led them to to confess we have sinned is they had a huge challenge their neighbors the Philistines had a mighty army they had more resources they had more men they had more uh, weapons they had more horses their Israelites were puny in comparison. They. They didn't have the ability really to defend themselves adequately. And so they came after this thing in a spiritual way, and they went to the man of God. They went to Samuel. And as this text, this passage shows us, and for some reason, you and I have not really understood that the challenges in your life have a spiritual connection, they have a spiritual root that if you just if if you do what so many do you just try to solve your problems or you try to fix things or or you just try to you know you try to overcome things in your own strength and and maybe even even say god will you bless what i'm doing you have really misunderstood the life of grace and you've misunderstood the favor of god every single challenge that you face can be faced spiritually before it's ever faced in the natural. As a matter of fact, I have found that if you'll get at the spiritual root of the issues of your life, you'll actually see fruit in the natural almost immediately. And so what they did is they said, we have an issue. We, we have, you know, we've, been, we've been in bed with these other gods. They're not going to save us because they're not more powerful than the gods of the Philistines. And uh, actually, these gods have weakened us. And so they're saying, We're crying out to the Lord because we miss the Lord because when the Lord is with us, nobody can touch us. (laughs) And so they repent and they say, we've sinned and they go after the mercy of God and they go after it together as a whole body and they go after the man of God that they know can hear from God. And they have him pray for them because they have no prayer lives themselves. And they have no understanding that they have access to God So basically, they see Samuel as kind of their magic man or their their medicine man or their shaman instead of understanding that they all have this kind of access. But they're they're not willing to walk in the grace and the favor of God. They just want to live in the mercy of God. And then they want to find somebody who can plead on their behalf. Well, he does because he's a mighty man of God. And he does because God is merciful. And when you go to God, even if you do it wrong, he still does it right. And so the story tells us, it says, you know, Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethgar. Now, this, this is a very important part of the story to realize. Why were they in Mizpah? They were in Mizpah to repent. They were in Mizpah to come together as a covenant community and come back to their covenant God. When is it that the devil attacked them? At the highest spiritual place of their lives. At the most spiritual place, Satan said, now's the time to get them all at once. And, and you might say to me, Where's Satan in this? All in this. Every one of those idols is a demon every one of those demons answers to a higher power and that higher highest power of the demonic realm is named satan and he has a strategy and his strategy is not just when you're at your weakest to attack you but also when you're at your spiritual high some of us have so been attacked at our spiritual high we never came we we never came back to god because we're like if it's this bad i'm not doing this again are you, are, you, are you seeing the pattern with me? You guys are kind of calm. All right, you with me so far? All right, so remember what I said. The Bible teaches us by these stories that behind every challenge in your life is a spiritual issue. So you might, you might defeat the symptom, but you've not dealt with the root, so the symptom comes back. So what does Samuel do? He goes after the symptom by going at the root. And he says, Lord, this is an issue with you. You're the defender. You're the judge of Israel. You're the king. You're the one who's going to save us. And as the people put their trust and their faith in God, God thundered from heaven. Now, you you might think I'm I'm naive, okay? You, You could easily think that I don't know what I'm talking about. But what I have found is that every financial issue in my life has a spiritual cause. I have found that every relationship issue in my life has a spiritual cause. If I will take time and I will go before the Lord and I will listen to him, he will tell me what has caused this. I have found that every symptom that shames me or makes me feel guilty has a spiritual cause. I mean, someone comes to me and says, I have an issue with, with pornography or sexual immorality. That's the symptom. That's not the root. This, the root is a, is a broken trust mechanism. The root is a place where love has not yet penetrated. The root is a place where the wounding has made you believe that by sexualizing yourself, you will actualize yourself. And you believed a lie that somehow your identity and your, your sexuality, you know, somehow by some kind of genital intimacy, you're going to actually find yourself and you don't. You just degrade yourself. And so instead of going after and saying, let's get more willpower, we really need to get in and say, we need to be so loved at the base of our being that we can actually, if we're men, we, our masculinity can come out In a healthy way and if we're women our femininity can come out in a healthy way and we can actually become not slaves to our bodies but but actually masters of our own bodies but in order for that to happen it can't just be we cope with this we have to go out and say who hurt me who damaged me who made me believe i couldn't trust authority who made me believe that when people should have cared for me, they actually abused me or violated me or betrayed me. And when you begin to ask those spiritual questions and emotional questions, and and you include in it, God, where are you in this healing process? Because I've never found any psychologist who could heal anybody. I've never found any, even faith healer, who could heal anybody. I've only ever known that Jesus can heal anybody. And so a lot of times what happens is is you're trying to solve the problems of your life which are symptoms and you're never dealing with the root and so they just keep coming back and keep coming back. But in this case, God proved, and He proved not just for that day but for all time, that when we attach to Him, He can take an army and destroy them without us even having to fire a shot. This is why, to me, This is why I want you to live on the grace side. I want you to live in the favor. There are people who will always think you're small, who will always think you're not enough, and there are all all kinds of places where the enemy will come and attack you and speak words over you, and you yourself are going to have to stand in who you are in Jesus Christ and in the grace of God and say, I have favor. None of these things are relevant to me. These things are not true of me. I know who I am. You know, one of the things that happens is one of the biggest attacks the enemy has on your life is accusation. If it stops working, he stops accusing. If it works, he'll keep it up. When you live in grace, see, when you live in grace, accusations are irrelevant. It's only when you live under law that accusations have any power. It's only if you're still trying to measure up, you're still trying to earn, you're still trying to merit. Then if someone says, and you're doing everything you can to merit God's love, and you're doing everything you can to be approved, and then someone says to you, "You're, you're not good enough, then it breaks your heart because you're in the wrong system. But if you're already approved and someone says to you, you're not good enough, you say, well, of course not. That's why I'm in grace. You know, tell me something else. Because it has no effect on me anymore. I mean, I care deeply about every one of you, and you could all find things to criticize me about, but what I'd look at you and say, but you know what God calls you to do? Love me. And if you don't, you're disobedient. You understand what I'm saying right now, don't you? (laughs) It's not that I can't learn from people's criticisms, but I've had people, because they're religious, they'll come up to me as pastor and they're saying, you're supposed to be more spiritual than us. You're supposed to be more godly than us. You're supposed to be more holy than us. I said, what system are you in? (laughs) The only one who's godly and holy is Jesus. I'm attached to him. Are you? You understand what I'm, I mean, you begin to understand that all of these accusations that come against you. All these things where you have fears, I'm going to fail, I'm not good enough. All of this stuff is irrelevant once you're in grace. But if you're still on that poverty side, if you're still on that side of sin, confess, oh, I wish I could do better, kind of woe is me sort of side, then all you ever get is mercy for how bad you are. And instead of walking tall and with an authority, In your identity, you're still bowed down because you're still wondering, am I approved? Am I accepted? I mean, It's your decision what you're going to do. But I would say this. One of the greatest things in the world is to do it together. This was not an individual repentance. This was a whole people of God repentance. There's something about community that makes it to where we're more powerful together doing this then we are alone. So I'm always glad that you're here. I'm always glad that you're with me on Sundays because together we're seeking God, not alone. You're not a coal from the fire stripped away. You're you're being piled together in the grill. All of us, our fire is pulling together and it's getting white hot. God is beginning to burn. The fire is beginning to blow to grow and fan into a flame. Well, there's one more part of this. Because the scriptures in 1 Samuel, it's always about stark contrast. Chapter 7, they're pursuing the mercy of God. They have this incredible victory of the Philistines. Chapter 8, would you read it with me? And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, I shall shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Is this not one of the saddest scriptures in all of the Bible? I I don't even presume to be able to tell you very fully all about the heart of God. I mean, God is not like us. God is higher than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But this definitely looks to me like a broken heart. And I sort of titled this message, God's Heart Can Be Broken. I mean, I have just never read anything like this, to tell you the truth. I mean, Samuel is... You know, Samuel is just crushed over what's going on here. And then God says, Samuel, it's not about you. They still respect you. They still come to you for guidance. They still come to you for wisdom. They trust what you say to them. It's me they're rejecting. Now some of you probably noticed, and I I think it's probably important that you notice, that Samuel's sons did not follow in the ways of Samuel. As a matter of fact, it's pretty clear that the scripture here says that they followed the same pattern that Hophni and Phinehas followed. It's a repeat. Remember I was telling you how when you don't get at the root of something, the symptoms come up again and again. Now, there are many of us in this room, we have older children. And some of our older children are not doing what we'd like them to do. Some of them are not following in the ways that we taught them, and some of them are not going the way that we would want them to go. I think that this passage is very interesting because it, there is not a criticism of Samuel here. There is no diminish in affection from God towards Samuel because of his sons. Can you hear me this, this morning? Because there are people who want to twist this passage and say this is Samuel's fault. And there are those, but if you read this carefully, it does not say that. It says that it's the corruption in his own son's hearts that came out. And something about the position they were put in magnified their corrupt nature. But God doesn't withdraw from Samuel, nor does he take back the anointing on Samuel because of the waywardness of his sons. It's just important that you understand that sometimes. The way people treat us when our kids aren't exactly going the way we want them to go isn't necessarily biblical. Again, it sounds a lot like judgment and not like grace. Can you receive that from me today? Because in a way, many of us have believed we are responsible for our children. But if you listened to me earlier, I have never found that you can compel a heart to do what a heart will not do. And my study of the scripture says God is looking for willing hearts, not enslaved hearts. And it's not an issue of control and behavior management. It is a transformation from the inside out. Plus, I'm almost convinced, and this is maybe a little added extra here, but I'm almost convinced that God works in a new way in every generation. And some of our kids are pioneers and they don't even know it. That they they are not lost to God, not in the way we think, even if their behavior seem to see, see, you know, kind of manifest this corruption or whatever's there. The thing that I am convinced of the longer I walk with Jesus is his love never fails. And that if a child, one of our children has met his love at some time, even if the church has hurt them, or people have hurt them, or even they've been disappointed with God, God does not give up on that child. It's important for us to understand that because again, are we going to live in grace? Are we going to give in to the control of law? I have never found that under law I can get close to God. I have only found that in grace can I have intimacy and oneness with God. So I think it's very important that we get this. But the but there's some key lessons that I'd like to leave with you today about from this passage. Number one, one of the deepest, most important needs that you have, whether you're in touch with it or not, is that you want to feel secure in the midst of insecurity. That more than anything else, whether you know it or not, you want to be safe. And for all of us, uncertainty on some level makes us feel very unsafe. For some of you, uncertainty in regard to the future can just really create tremendous fear. Others of us, the future doesn't bother us, but we can be very, very upset if our relationships are uncertain or if there's ambiguity and we don't know if we're liked or we're connected. Uh, For many of us, uncertainty... Uh, manifest in anger it manifests in anxiety and fear and and if everything gets uncertain and starts to feel very impossible it can manifest in deep despair because you begin to think I'll never be happy, I'll never be satisfied and so everybody whether they're really conscious of this or not they're trying to say how can I make my uncertainty certain, how can I make what is insecure, secure. That's why we get houses. That's why we, that's why we spend so much money on certain neighborhoods. That's why we want to have the safest cars. That's why we want to have so much in our bank accounts. And all of these things that it, the, our logical mind knows all of that could be wiped away in a moment. But we will give ourselves and kill ourselves just so we can keep job security. We will do almost anything to make the insecure secure and the uncertain certain. And so what happened to the people of Israel is that the king of Israel was invisible. He was showing up when they needed it. When the Philistines came, God thundered from heaven. And when he thundered, they defeated the Philistines. But that required faith. Come on, you got to track with me. Are you tracking a little bit? Did I lose you? Okay. You got to have faith to for God to be your king. You got to have faith because you can't see him. You see what he does and you hear the stories of what he did. But when you're facing a whole new batch of Philistines, you're like, okay, where's God? And is he going to come through this time? And now you're feeling, oh, I'm going to feel insecure. I feel uncertain. Now, there were some who had great faith, and they didn't feel insecure because they they knew he would show up. Samuel knew that God would show up. Samuel knew that God was a king and and he was an administrator as a judge of the of the kingdom of God, so he didn't have a problem with that, but all the people said, "We can't see God, but we do see you, Samuel, and you're old, and we like what you have to say, and you're wise, but you're not going to there's no more kick butt going on with you because you're old and we want something secure. Okay, now, why am I saying, you can probably figure out why I'm saying this, because there's a reason they rejected God. There's a reason they they thought what they were saying was perfectly reasonable. It made sense to them. You know why it made sense to them? Because they looked at their neighbors and said, well, our neighbors have a king. Look over there. The Philistines have a king. You know, this group has a king. Why can't we have a king? That's what they're saying. Okay, so are you, are you tracking with me on this? I, I'm just trying to say the more I read the Bible, and this is 3,000 years ago, I realize we haven't changed a lot. You know, because what does Samuel say when he explains to them, God says you can have a king? He says to them, You're going to give up your freedom because you're going to have to submit to that king and guess what you're going to have to give up your money cuz he's going to tax you and he's going to taxation without representation is going to go on here and there's not going to be any tea party in the boston harbor here you're going to you're asking for it you're going to have to do it and he's laying out for them how bureaucracy is now going to take over how they're going to have, how they had direct access to god But now they're going to have to go through a king to God? And they're like, we don't care. We just want to be safe. We just want to be able to every day see we have a king and know that he will take care of us. In other words, they're saying we no longer want to be responsible for our own faith. We want someone else to make us feel safe. And we want one we can see, not one that we have heard of. Well, and God says, they've rejected me. They've not rejected you. Now, uh, this is a really powerful story because every single one of us in this room, whether you know it or not, uncertainty really bothers you. The insecurities of your life, things you can't see, believing that the invisible God will show up when you need him most, that he will not fail you, is the very essence of spiritual maturity and it is the essence of trust. Only the one who knows that God will show up can say, wait on the Lord. My deliverer is coming. Now, the, the piece that I guess for me is so powerful in the story is, is this all goes back to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses says to the people, there will be a day when God will give you a king. And then he lays out the qualifications and the requirements for that king. And when you read it, you recognize there's only one person who could have ever been that king. It's Jesus himself. It's not even David. Especially not Saul, but it wasn't even David. David couldn't be the king that God gave to them. And I'm not saying David wasn't a man after God's own heart, but as you see David's reign unfold, David was not the king. There's only one king for the people of God, and it's not, it's not an ordinary man. It's someone who's fully man and fully God. It's someone who lives for the obedience of his Father. It's someone who lives not doing his own will, but doing the will of the Father. It's someone whose very word of God. He is the word of God. There's no other king for us but Jesus. I mean, I'm not just turning away from, from this world and my neighbors and their gods and all like that. I'm turning to the king. And there's only one king that God's ever chosen for you or for me or for this this church or for our community, and that king is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only king who needs nothing from me. Jesus is the only treasure that doesn't ask my treasure. He treasures me. And He is my treasure. I mean, it's just so powerful when you begin to realize that I have often short-circuited God, what God wants to do in my life because I feel uncertain. I've often jumped into solutions and fixed things because I felt insecure. Because I really didn't believe that an invisible king of an invisible kingdom could be more real to me than the visible problems and challenges and opposition that I face. And it wasn't until I got rid of those idols and detached from those sexual impurities and I didn't have a divided heart, but as I moved in trust towards the king, I started to see that his voice was the only voice I was ever made to hear. That I have a love for him as his subject, I have a love for him as his follower, I have a love for him that I have for no one else but him. It's an interesting thing as I study this passage together and I think about Samuel and I think what happened. is Samuel was a great man of God, but his shadow cast over the people and no one else seemed to be a great man or woman of God. They just counted on Samuel to be a great man of God. And then when he got old, they got afraid because now we have no one in whose shadow we can live. It's very easy for many of us in here to say, oh, I'll let the intercessors be the prayer people. Oh, I'll stand in the shadow of Eleanor. I'll stand in the shadow of Pastor Dan or Nancy. You know, they've gone far. And and never realize that this battle, this journey, is for you to develop trust. It's for you to develop spiritual muscles. It's for you to stand up and be the Samuel of your generation no matter how young or old you are. It's fantastic to have mentors. It's a wonderful thing to have spiritual guidance. But in the the real challenges, the moments where the heart has to respond, they're not going to be there for you. Because spiritual muscles and spiritual strength, spiritual maturity is usually learned in the desert not in the shadow of somebody else. And so it seems to me that in many ways that that many of you could just be counting on that someone else be spiritual for you. That someone else take your insecurities away. That someone else take the uncertainty away. Isn't it great that we have men and women of God around us? It is great, but let me tell you, you need to be one of them. You can't... Spend your whole life complaining about how bad you have it. You need to overcome. You need to walk in the favor of God, not just depend on the mercy of God. You need to be your own Samuel. Can you hear me with that today? I mean, it's not easy because it's kind of a strong message of repentance and I'm asking you to turn from everything else that you're depending on, and even even not to make your mentors an idol. Because even in this case, their mentor became old. And they lost their confidence because he became old. Isn't that fascinating when you think about it? It's time for you to take the hill. It's time for you to stand up to your Philistines here. You can do it. You have favor. <laughs> I'll finish with this. I was down in Mississippi, and they gave me a rental car, and it had uh, satellite radio. I didn't realize that Joel Olstein was on 24 hours a day. <laughs> it was amazing. I felt so happy. Uh, I did. He's so, he's so encouraging. Um so I'm listening to him. I don't listen to him very much, but I was listening to him. And, and he, he, you know, everything he, he does is really incredibly positive. It's is incredibly a positive thing. So he's talking about self-talk, and he's talking about how people, you know, if, if you keep saying all these negative things about yourself, and Lisa says this a lot, if you keep saying these negative things about yourself, you start believing it. And after a while, whatever strength you have is gone. So he gets to the end of his message. He's, he's really, he's a very good storyteller. He gets to the end of his message, and he goes, I, what's the name of his church? Anybody know? Lakewood. Lakewood. Okay, he says, I want you to know that at Lakewood Church, we have very stringent qualifications for who can sit in our services, for those who can listen to us on the radio, and those who can watch us on TV. These requirements are that you must be the cream of the crop, you must be the the very best, brightest, prettiest, handsomest, strongest, most godly, most most, you know, brave, courageous, faithful, all these things. And he says, And you're here today because you meet those standards. And of course everybody's laughing. Because they know they just got in for free, you know. <laughs> they let anybody in. <laughs> You know, because anybody can. I'm sitting there listening to him on the radio. You know, they didn't. They didn't do any stringent requirements or anything else. But his point is so beautiful. You're here because you are the cream of the crop. You're here because you are the brightest, because you are the prettiest, you are the strongest, you're the handsomest, you're the most faithful, you're the most worthy to be here because you have favor. Stop living like you don't. And stand up right now with me. Okay, I'm going to teach you how to swagger a little bit. <laughs> okay? All right, I mean, you know, like, you ever want, think? think for a minute. We'll just, we'll finish with this. Gabe's coming up. Okay, but think about this. When you are... Speaking negatively about yourself and you're, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm nothing. I've always done the wrong things. What happens to you posture-wise? Come on, show me. Yeah, you just, you slump, your shoulders get heavy. You know, you want to keep your head down because you don't want to look anybody in the eye because you don't want them to see that you're an imposter. Okay? All right, so... If you believe that you have favor, then you start opening up. You start standing up. Your head starts to go up. You begin to get a posture of power. Where's my wife? Come over here a minute. Come on. She can show you a posture of power. Come on. (laughs) Okay, that was it. That was so powerful, I I can't do anything with it. All right, but, oh, you're stuck, okay, all right, where's your power? <laughs> all right, so what I want you to do, I want you to hold your hands up like this, okay, we're not saying this to the Lord, but, you know, if you were addressing a huge crowd of people, and you wanted them to be quiet, or you wanted to control that crowd, you put your hands up like this, and you began to speak, and it's also a sign of victory, it's a place, I, you're saying, I've triumphed. I've overcome. So here's what I want, I want you to say with me. I'm under grace. I'm under grace. Not, under law. Not under law. I have favor. I have favor. No, one no one can take it away from me. Because it was given to me. Because given to me. And because I, because I value it. Isn't that fun to say? Let's say that part again. No one can take it away from me me. because it was given to me me. and I value it. it. See, the reason I have you do this, it's also kind of prophetic. You know, when you're doing this, you're blessing people. See, this favor is not just for me. It's so I can bless my family. It's so I can bless my friends. I can bless my community. I have favor to give away. (laughs) Right? Are you hearing me? Lord, we thank You for this. Thank You for this. I have favor. Your people have favor. We're not the poverty-stricken ones. We're not the spirit of poverty. We curse and say, wither up and die, spirit of poverty. Detach from our personality. I will not define myself by how bad my life is. But I'll look for Your grace and Your mercy in all the things of my life, all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me All the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. As we're singing together with the prayer team, just come forward. Some of you need someone else to say a blessing over you today before you go. The favor of the Lord is in this room. I can feel it. If you have a place where you've sinned, you need to come and confess it, you need to deal with it, you need to turn from your idols. You need to turn to the living God with all your heart. Young and old, come to the Lord this morning. There's grace, there's mercy. He never fails us. Come on and pray with people. Make make that, that turnaround today.